As usual, it is a pleasure and an honor to be able to stand in the pulpit in uh, Bert's absence. And this week's Torah portion is taken from Exodus chapter 18. It is Etro. It is my Torah portion. This Torah portion is uh, very special in very many ways. Of all the things that have happened throughout the scriptures, there's a handful of things that stand out more than any. And I think, of course, the resurrection being one, the creation account being one. But this portion in Etro has the Ten Commandments in it. This is where God actually spoke from the heavens to the nation of Israel. These are the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. At Mount Sinai, the children of Israel heard audibly the voice of God. And in their fear of hearing his voice, the thundering, the smoke, the lightnings, they told Moses, they said, we're, we're too scared. Why don't you speak for us? And I can't help thinking, as I, as I do with any portion of scripture, I try to put myself in the place of the people that heard and saw and experienced the things that took place in the Bible. And I think, you know, if it came right down to it, I'd probably say, I'm no different than anyone else. I would probably have done the same thing. But I can't help feeling that later that night, in 2020 hindsight, as we're not all standing in a congregation, when we're, on, when we're in our own tents with our family and our friends and we're discussing it, would the topic come up that, boy, that wasn't a very smart thing to do. We, we heard the voice of God and here we are, we survived it. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to hear the voice of God just like Moses and have God continue to talk to us? But we'll never know. I don't know if those conversations ever took place. I would like to think that if I was there, that'd be something that would cross my mind. But they all heard that voice. They saw the stone tablets. Moses came down. He was holding these two tablets. I can't imagine, I don't know if it would have been sacrilegious at the time to literally walk over there, but I would have wanted to have walked over to him and put my hand on that stone and feel the cold stone in Moses' hand and put my finger in the grooves of those Hebrew letters and trace those. I'm in, I'm in awe when, when I see a Facebook post of something like the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. And those are just copies. I haven't seen the real ones, but, but my, just something inside me just gets excited about that. But I can't imagine having seen the actual Ten Commandments as Moses came down off that, that mountain. These were written by the finger of God. This wasn't something Moses went up there and chipped out of the stone on his own. And there at Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with the children of Israel. And they agreed to it. Before they heard the Ten Commandments, Moses goes up and says, I want you to make a covenant. And they said, everything that you say will do. Then God gives them the Ten Commandments. And as our brother Bill often would say, this is a very beautiful Torah portion. When I was young, the church that I went to was very Bible-based. But whenever they spoke about the Jews or Israel, it was always in a historical context. I, I got the impression that Jews didn't live today. The, the Jews were mentioned in terms like the Philistines or the Hittites, people that, that lived back in history, and typically they were people who were antagonistic toward Yeshua. They were synonymous with the scribes and the Pharisees, those who opposed Yeshua. In my mid-teens, I was wanting more than just what that congregation was giving me, the, the messages that were coming from there. Now, to their credit, the two things that they were rock solid on 
was the preaching that God's Word is the authoritative Word of God, uncompromisingly. And the other was they preached the genuine, Christ-centered gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Yeshua, apart from works, Old or New Testament. But after listening to roughly 52 sermons a year on the gospel, I thought there, there's got to be more. That, that's a first step. And I can remember hearing the altar calls week after week, sitting there thinking, who in the congregation hasn't already gone up? We've all been saved and we're hearing the gospel message being preached week after week. What is the next? What do you do next? Well, in my desire to walk with God, I was searching for incorrectly, but I was searching for the correct church to go to. And this was spawned from, uh, from about 17 to my mid-20s. All of my closest friends were Mormons. And of course, this cult teaches that they are the one and only true church. So I kind of got in the mindset, I've got to be in the right church. It's false, but that's just where my mind went. But nevertheless, I sought a community of believers that were like-minded in their belief of and acceptance of the scriptures being the authoritative word of God and where do you go from there. Well, one of my college professors was a pastor at a local church and one of my best friends went to this church. Amazing guitarist. I was just learning how to play at the time and he was a very, very good guitarist. And he brought me to his congregation and I had been used to being in a congregation that had pews in it old uh, stained glass windows and things like this. And I came into the church and it was the first time I saw a church that had seating like this, uh, just chairs with the cushioned backs and a raised area. And when the people came up to sing, a group of people came up and they started singing a cappella. Just, there was clap, clap, clap. And I thought, you know, is this like a Mary Kay convention or something? They just, there was, it seemed odd to me to worship that way. And the guy sitting next to me, my friend, was a really good guitar player. And I thought, well, why don't you join their band and actually, you know, play? And they're, they're not having instruments in their worship. They had a reason for that. It was their stated doctrinal position that everything in the Old Testament had been done away with. So play skillfully before the Lord and play with a harp and a lyre and string instruments and this, that was all done away with because God had done away with the Old Testament because they referred to themselves as a New Testament church. And all they, they, they memorized scripture and knew the Testament, New Testament very well. It was their doctrinal statement, everything in the Old Testament had been abolished. They even used two scriptures to back up this doctrinal statement. They got it from the Bible. Ephesians 5:19. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3:16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And they interpreted that to mean no musical instruments. They were very legalistic. They, they expected every one of their members to go knocking on doors and witnessing to people, saving, saving souls. I thought, well, that's, that's wonderful. But if you didn't, you were going to hell. They expected you to be in church every Sunday. If you didn't, you were going to hell. Well, they based that on a verse of scripture as well. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, we're all familiar with this. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So they had a biblical scriptural reason why we're to worship on Sunday, and you must be in church or you're going to hell. Well, the word assembling in this passage is not ecclesia, as it is throughout most of the New Testament. Now, now understand, this is the book of Hebrews. It's written by a Jew. 
It's written to Jews. The Greek word used in this passage is not ecclesia. It is episynagogue. It's where we get the English word synagogue. This Jewish author is telling Jewish believers of the first century, let's not forsake our synagoguing ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what this passage is telling them to do is to go to the synagogue, which would be on Saturday, not the church on Sunday. Needless to say, the irony of this verse was lost on them, on the church that I attended. It doesn't say go to church on Sunday. It says go to the synagogue. Well, this church was very legalistic, and everything in the New Testament you had to do or you were lost and going to hell. According to them, salvation hung in the balance of you keeping the New Testament commandments. Over my years of, of reading the scriptures, I've, I've come to find that, and, and read, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1,050 New Testament commandments. As opposed to the 613 commandments of the Old Testament. And I'm thinking, well, if you're, if you're going to choose which one you're going to be legalistically under, wouldn't you choose the less amount? Well, and even the 613, understand, there were specific laws that applied only to the Levites. Some laws applied only to the priests. Some laws applied only to the high priest. Some applied to men. Some applied to men who went to war. Some applied to women. Some applied to children. Some applied to those who lived in the land. So, so you could pare down the 613 depending on which category you specifically fit in. And if you consider don't commit adultery is commanded in the Old Testament, but don't even think about it is in the New Testament. Don't murder in the Old Testament, but don't even be angry with your brother without a cause in the New Testament. It would seem like those would be a lot more harder to follow. My point is, it's possible to use scriptures to teach unscriptural doctrine. At the risk of appearing to be casting stones at my friend or his church or trying to pick a speck out of their eye, we all work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. They stand before God just as each one of us and our account for their own lives. And clearly I'm not infallible. It's possible that I too could misinterpret the scriptures. So I wanted to learn from the great theological minds and what they had to say on various topics concerning the scriptures, salvation, the law, etc. And I've read many of the church fathers as well as commentaries from classical and modern theologians and I came to an interesting observation. They agree more or less on all topics except one and that's Israel. Whether it's their law, their covenant, or their nation they all came to pretty much the same conclusion, but for different reasons. For instance, the law. They all agreed that it was abolished, but they varied greatly on the specifics of what, when, or who did it. The covenant. They all agreed it was broken, and therefore it was abolished. And the nation. Most of them, not all of these uh, commentaries or theologians, believed that the church had replaced Israel. Well, regarding the law, they disagreed on what was actually abolished. I'm going to give a list of some of the, as I've spoke to different people in different churches that I've been to and read commentaries, this is some of the conclusions that they came to. One, everything in the Old Testament had been abolished. Now, this was the, the doctrinal stated position of the church that I'd gone to when I was in college. However, there are many end-time events written in the prophets that have not yet taken place. Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah mention things such as the third temple 
needs to be built. That hasn't happened yet. The revival of the old Roman Empire, the rise of the Antichrist, the battle of Gog and Magog, the peace treaty with Israel, which is broken, and then a world government is established, the battle of Armageddon, and in the last days, all nations will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. To assume that these scriptures are abolished is to make void the word of the Lord. Therefore, this particular version of the law abolishment doctrine is incorrect. Second one. Only the law of Moses was abolished. So... You're going to go ahead and keep the prophets. But everything that Moses wrote was abolished. Well, Yeshua and the apostles either restated or observed the Ten Commandments. Therefore, this version of the law abolishment doctrine is incorrect. Some of them take the position then, well, okay, all of the law of Moses were abolished except for the Ten Commandments. Well, Yeshua and the apostles restated and thus reaffirmed many of the moral laws such as you're to abstain from fornication, mentioned in Leviticus, re-mentioned in Acts. Sodomy is forbidden, mentioned in Leviticus, restated in Romans. Marriage is between a man and a woman, Genesis 2, Matthew 19. We're to be holy, that's in Leviticus, you're restated in 1 Peter. Therefore, this version of the law abolishment doctrine is incorrect. So the next one, number four. Okay, so all the law of Moses was abolished except for the Ten Commandments and the moral laws. Well, Albert Barnes, John Gill, Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, and John Wesley embraced this version of the law abolishment doctrine. But again, Yeshua and the apostles restated and thus reaffirmed many laws that were not moral laws. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading the corn. Deuteronomy, restated in 1 Corinthians. You're supposed to judge righteously. It's from Leviticus, restated in John. Multiple witnesses are required to confirm a matter. It's from Numbers, restated in Matthew. And tithing is mentioned in Leviticus, restated in Matthew 23. Therefore, this version of the law abolishment doctrine is incorrect. So we're parsing this down and pairing this to smaller and smaller groups. A fifth one, the laws that separated Israel from the nations were abolished. John Calvin and Adam Clark espoused this version of the law abolishment doctrine. However, Christians the world over observe and follow the laws which were unique to the nation of Israel. For instance, those of us in here who are Gentiles, whose ancestors were worshiping rocks and sticks, now follow this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The nations did not follow this God. This was a law unique to Israel. You shall have no other gods before me. The nations worshiped multiple gods. Him alone shall you serve. Again, the nation served multiple gods. You shall not make unto you a graven image. The nations worshipped idols. This is a law specific to, unique to the nation of Israel and those of us who have joined ourselves to it. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The nations did not take upon themselves the name of the God of Israel. They followed other gods. So by our own affirmation of these laws, we believers demonstrate that this version of the law abolishment doctrine is not correct. So how about this one, number six. The Sabbath as well as the ceremonial and sacrificial laws were abolished. Well, Yeshua and his disciples observed the Sabbath as well as many of the ceremonial and sacrificial laws. This is a new covenant. Chapter, Luke chapter 2, after the birth of Yeshua, his parents circumcised him. Mary purified herself and offered a sacrifice according to the law. 
Yeshua and his disciples kept the Sabbath all throughout the New Testament. Yeshua taught his disciples to offer sacrifices. Matthew 5, 24, leave your gift there on the altar. First go your way, make reconciliation, then come back and offer that gift. Yeshua taught his disciples to show themselves to the priests. Those who had, been, who had had leprosy and they had been healed, you show yourself to the priest to prove that you've been cleansed. Yeshua taught his disciples to get, offer the gift that Moses commanded. Again, once you've shown yourself to the priest, you then offer a gift. Okay, someone might say, well, yeah, that was before Yeshua died on the cross. Okay. The following are laws of Moses, they say, were abolished, except for the ones penned after Yeshua died on the cross. Well, the Sabbath, as well as many of the ceremonial and sacrificial laws were observed by the first century believers, including Paul, after the death of Messiah on the cross. Before I continue with the ones that I'm going to read, I'm going to read something from Hebrews 10. And I'm going to repeat it. But in those sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year because they had to sacrifice every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Now let me restate that again before I continue to read. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Not Adam's, not Noah's, not Abraham's, not Moses's, David's, Paul's, yours or mine. Not then, not now, not ever. Why? He says so. For it is not possible. Never happened. Okay. Now, it's in our mind. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But that doesn't mean that the first century Christians stopped sacrifice. In fact, they continued and keeping the Sabbath. Luke 23, the women who prepared spices for the body of Yeshua, quote, rested on the Sabbath. Yeshua is dead and in the grave, and these women rested on the Sabbath. Jewish believers, including Paul, took the Nazarite vow, Acts 18, 18, and Acts 21, 23 to 26. At James's request, this is in Acts chapter 21. Paul purified himself and entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until an offering, and understand that sacrifice, should be offered. Jewish believers, including Paul, ceremonially pured themselves, purified themselves according to the law. Jewish believers continued to offer sacrifice and keep the ceremonial laws after the resurrection, there's 15 years into the church age, and four believers, along with Paul, went into the church to offer a sacrifice. Paul, of course, didn't quite make it. He was in the temple, head shaved to offer a sacrifice, and had the sacrifice with him, had the offering with him, and the Jews saw him there and pulled him out of the temple. They did not pull the other four out. Jewish believers were zealous for the law. Acts 21. This is way into the church age. According to Ezekiel, the prince will offer sacrifices in the future temple. This temple has not even been built yet in our day. And yet the prince will offer sacrifices in it. And the Lord affirmed in Ezekiel that, quote, all the ordinances of the house of the Lord will be observed in this future temple. Therefore, this version of the law abolishment doctrine is incorrect. Number eight. The dietary laws were abolished after the death of Yeshua. Well, James and the elders wrote to the Gentile believers to abstain from eating 
food that had been polluted by idols. That's a dietary law. They taught the Jewish believers to abstain from eating meat that had been strangled. That's a dietary law. And to abstain from eating blood. That's a dietary law. And in Acts 10, where Peter sees the vision, when the Lord told Peter to kill and eat, Peter admitted, this is Acts chapter 15, we're somewhere in the neighborhood of about 15 years into the church age at this time, Acts chapter 10, excuse me, about 15 years into the age of the church age, God tells Peter to kill and eat, and Peter says, no, I have never eaten anything common or unclean, ever. Peter did not understand Yeshua to ever have said, laws done away with. These, these biblical dietary laws have been done away with. Now, Peter and Abraham were both tested by God in the same way. God commanded each one of them to kill. The difference is, Abraham reached for a knife. Peter did not. As a result, Peter doubted within himself what the vision would mean. Abraham is referred to as the father of the faithful because of that act. I suppose Peter could be called the father of the doubtful for not acting. Not only do many of our brothers in Christ reject laws that were restated by Yeshua and the apostles and observed by first century Christians after the resurrection, the following laws were not restated in the New Covenant, but we believers follow these. For instance, the prohibition against kidnapping stated in the Old Covenant. It's not restated in the New Covenant. The prohibition against marrying a, new rel a near relative. That's not in the New Covenant. The prohibition against cross-dressing is not in the New Covenant. The prohibition against accepting a ransom for murder is not in the New Covenant. Constraining a bull that has previously injured someone is not in the New Covenant. And returning lost property to its owner is not in the New Covenant. And there, there are dozens of others. So every version of the Law of Abolishment Doctrine has multiple exceptions that invalidate its argument. As varied as these versions are, they at least have some sort of sense of rationale to them. There's some sort of category that they fit in. Well, over the years, speaking to my friends and having discussions regarding God's commandments, my friends are certain, they just feel certain that there are certain laws that God must have absolutely gotten rid of, and I call these the, well, what about laws? They'll ask me, well, what about the law that requires a man to marry his brother's childless widow? Or... What about the law that requires a woman to have her hand cut off if she grabs the private parts of the man her husband is fighting? Or what about the law that requires putting to death witches, rebellious sons, homosexuals, adulterers, etc.? Or what about dot, 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 fill in the blank, whatever it is. The list just goes on and on. The problem with these rhetorical questions is that there is no common, justifiable, rational pattern to these other than the fact Christians just find them distasteful. Some of these laws are civil, some of them are religious, some of them are ceremonial, some of them are moral. Understand, these are God's laws and as distasteful as someone may feel that they are, God gave them for a reason. I may not know it. But God didn't confer to me on what we should or shouldn't be following. He just said, this is it, and I have a choice of doing it or not. So it ultimately boils down to this. No version of the law abolishment doctrine is stated in or supported by the scriptures. Even the scholars recognize this, otherwise they would all agree on that version. Let me restate that. No version of the law abolishment doctrine is stated in or supported by the scriptures. Even the scholars recognize this, otherwise they would all agree on that version. 
If there was one, why do so many theologians have so many different versions that they, that they believe? Because there isn't one in the scriptures. Also keep in mind that Isaiah and Micah both prophesied that the law will go forth from Zion in the latter days, as it is written. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Understand, house is the Lord's temple. He will teach us his ways. Well, we know his ways. They're written in the Old Testament. And we shall walk in his paths. He's written those out for us. For out of Zion the law shall go forth. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. From Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So theologians have studied the exact same Bible. Therefore, the facts and the evidence to come to their conclusions are identical. And yet, the facts and evidence do not lead these theologians to a common conclusion. I find it very revealing that the world's most brilliant theologians don't agree on exactly what was abolished. They don't even agree as to when whatever they believed was abolished was actually abolished or who did it. Keep in mind Yeshua's words, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So as far as when these theologians believe that the law was abolished, some say that Yeshua abolished the dietary laws back in Mark 7.19. Well, this would make Yeshua the least in his own kingdom if he taught his disciples to break the least of one of God's commandments. Some teach that God abolished the dietary laws in Acts 10. Again, surely we can't conclude that God is the least in his own kingdom. Some say the, Apollo, the apostles abolished the law. Some say Paul did it. Some say that the law did not fully vanish away until after the destruction of the temple. This is taken from Hebrews 8.13. Well, the writings of these scholars suggest that they believe that law and grace are in competition with each other as a means of salvation. And since we're saved by grace, the law lost that battle and so it was abolished. The problem is that the law didn't lose that battle because it was never in the running. It was never the purpose of the law to save. It's never been in competition with grace. Even Paul admitted in Galatians 3, if there had been a law given which could have given life, then verily righteousness should have been by the law. So Paul understood if, if any law could do it, it would be God's law. But he said it couldn't. No law can bring life. It was never the purpose of the law. But the law does have a purpose. Dozens and dozens of them. I'm only going to read a few. It reveals to us what sin is, Romans 3. It converts the soul, Psalm 19.7. We read this this morning. It makes wise the simple. It makes the simple wise. It instructs the foolish. It teaches the immature. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Testifies of Yeshua. It makes us wise into salvation and it brings us to Messiah. Galatians 3. Well the law still performs all of these functions and as such it has not ended or been abolished. The law is perfect at performing the purpose for which it was intended. Shall we conclude that 
God's justice was abolished because it does not fulfill the purpose of his mercy? We should avoid setting up false comparisons between the law and grace or building straw man arguments that misinterpret the purpose of the law and then conclude the law was abolished because it failed to do something it was never intended to do. But if our focus is on keeping the law, our focus is on the wrong thing. Our focus should be on Christ alone. The Torah observant Jews of the first century had an unparalleled knowledge of the scriptures. They read it in their language. But they rejected the one whom the scripture spoke of. They knew the Torah. They knew the law. But the apostles knew Yeshua. He is the only way of salvation. So at Mount Sinai, all Israel heard the voice of God speak the Ten Commandments, audibly heard that. All Israel saw the stone tablets with the law written by the finger of God. And there God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. He even placed his law in the hearts of men, as it is written. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of judgment. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. Psalm 37. David writes, I do, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Your law is in my heart. Well, my, while my ancestors were worshiping rocks and sticks, God called a people out for himself to reveal his glory. But God in his mercy did not leave the nations without hope. Paul writes in Romans 11, which again we read this morning, For I speak to you Gentiles, that's me and many of us here, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I might provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own eyes, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Oh, the depths and riches of both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. As someone whose ancestors did not stand at the foot of Mount Sinai, through the New Covenant, God has allowed, and through grafting in, God has allowed those of us who are Gentiles to partake of the richness and the fullness of the olive tree. And though my ancestors did not stand before the Lord on that fateful day at Mount Sinai, in his mercy and grace, the Lord grafted me into the commonwealth of Israel. In spite of having an ancestry, that was not standing there. The Lord has spoken to all of us who are Gentiles, saying in Hebrews 12, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to the blackness and darkness and tempest, to the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. 
for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned with, or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and terrified. But you have come to Mount Zion. That's me. I wasn't standing there. I didn't go to that mountain. But I've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Yeshua, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Well, in spite of being a Gentile, I am a partaker of this new covenant through Yeshua the Messiah as it prophesied in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. the only thing that the Lord did for me was merely forgive me of my sin it would have been enough but he's done so much more well since the law was already in the hearts of men why write it again Isaiah writes Lord who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed therefore they could not believe because Isaiah says again he, was, he has blinded the eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so I should heal them. Even the hearts of Yeshua's disciples had become hard. Yeshua said to them after turning, feeding the 5,000 with bread, he says, Do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Well, how did man get this hard heart? Because of man's sins, his spiritual senses are dulled or have become hard. As a result, the Lord sent preachers of righteousness, like Noah, Lot, Moses, and Jonah, to remind men what good is. When Yeshua came, he spoke in parables so that only those who were spiritually discerning or those who had ears to hear could understand what he taught. As it is written, Hebrews 5.14 Those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In an allegorical sense, the unfathomable glory of God affects the presence of men's hearts similar to the way that the sun affects objects that come near it. The sun that will harden the softest piece of clay into a brick will also liquefy the hardest piece of wax. The difference is what's in the heart of man. This differentiates the righteous from the wicked. Just as all of men have sinned, all men have the ability to discern, according to Hebrews, to discern both good and evil. Now, I believe this was gained when Adam ate from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Through unrepentant sinning, the wicked had their senses dulled or hardened. And as the author of Hebrews put it, by reason of use, therefore repentance that leads to obedience, the righteous discern the difference between good and evil. Those who had faith in God and trusted in Him obeyed Him from their heart. Those who did not have faith in God did not obey Him and their senses were dulled. And as a result, they became even more ungodly. We see this contrast illustrated in two rulers, Pharaoh and the king of Nineveh. Because of Pharaoh's repeated unrepentant heart, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. I don't believe the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart in a sense of malicious intent any more than the sun hardens clay with a malicious intent. The Lord sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to obey him. 
However, rather than having trusting faith in the Lord's mercies and repent as the wicked people of Nineveh did, Pharaoh's heart became even harder. The results were predictable. Pharaoh became all the more ungodly, and the Lord did not destroy the repentant inhabitants of Nineveh. So at Mount Sinai, all Israel heard the voice of God speak the Ten Commandments. All Israel saw the stone tablets and the law written by the finger of God. There God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. He even placed his law in their hearts. But they still lacked one thing. His indwelling spirit. Ezekiel wrote, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Even though men already had the law written on their hearts, their hearts had become hard as stone. What an appropriate metaphor here in Ezekiel. The Lord wrote his law on stone tablets and the hearts that he had written them on had turned to stone. At the institution of the new covenant, the Lord removed the hearts of stone from Israel and replaced them with hearts of flesh. He then wrote his law on those hearts of flesh and gave Israel his spirit in order to walk in his statutes and keep his judgments. Notice the law remains the same. It's the heart that was changed. In Luke 24, Refera referred to the Spirit as the promise of the Father. Well, the promise was made in Ezekiel. It was fulfilled at the New Covenant, specifically on the day of Pentecost. Paul refers to this as the earnest of the Spirit, saying, He also sealed us and gave us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Well, the definition of earnest is an earnest payment is a specific form of security deposit to demonstrate the applicant is serious and willing to demonstrate an earnest of good faith about wanting to complete the action. Consider the Afikoman at the Passover Seder. During the Seder, there are three matzahs in the matzah bag. You take the middle one out, you break it, you wrap it in cloth, and then you bury it. The children then search for that. The child that finds it brings it to the father and it is redeemed by the father. The Seder cannot continue until they eat that. The Afikoman, as we Messianics understand it, is Messiah Yeshua. Those of us who are simple-minded, the children, we search for that. We search for Messiah. When we find him, we bring him to the Father. The Father gives us earnest. We come to the Father and say, we want something. I want eternal life. I have found Messiah. And the Father says, rather than, rather than just bringing me up into heaven right then, he says, I will give you something. I'll give you earnest to show in good faith that I will eventually bring you into heaven. And what he does is he gives us the earnest of the Spirit. Just as the father of the Passover, the child may say, I've got, I've, I found the Afikoma. I want a bicycle. I want a computer game. I want, I want something. And the father says, well, I haven't got that right here now. But I tell you what, I will give you, and he hands the child some money. This is earnest to let you know in good faith I'm going to exchange right here, right now, what you've got, and I'll take it. Father does that with the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us because we found Yeshua. We brought him to the Father and said, look what I found. You, you, you've given me Yeshua, and now you've given me your Holy Spirit as a down payment. But the Spirit is more than just the earnest paid to the Father, letting us know we have eternal life, and one day we will see the Father face to face. But until then, He's not just a guarantee of our salvation, 
He is our comforter. Yeshua says, these things I have spoken to you, being present with you, but the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all things whatsoever I have said to you. So at Mount Sinai, all Israel heard the audible voice of God. Today, the Holy Spirit speaks to us as believers. In fact, the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Shavuot. The Lord spoke the Ten Commandments on the day of Shavuot. Well, in my youth, as I said, I was looking for the next step. I understood salvation. Well, I found it. It is a journey walking with the Spirit, as it is written. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Well, if you're not a believer in the Lord Yeshua, and if you're watching here in the, uh, on the Internet, I would urge you to put your trust in Messiah Yeshua. As Paul writes, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. If you confess with your mouth Yeshua is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you are already a believer, I would urge you to prayerfully consider what Yeshua said concerning the commandments. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, that you have given us your instructions. And though we stumble and fall sometimes over them, Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your spirit that will guide us in the right way. Guide us in your paths. Comfort us, Lord God, along this journey. Lift us up when we fall. Encourage us to keep moving forward. We thank you, God, for all the things that you have done, both Jew and Gentile, because of your great mercy. We bless you, praise you, and thank you, Father, for all of these things. And you show his most wonderful and holy name. Amen. Oh,